I'm Paul Sutton, and this is Digital Download, the show where I talk to topic experts on digital marketing, social media, and public relations about the things that matter in today's communications industry. What do consumers really want from brands in 2022? It's a question that's been on my mind a lot recently, and in fact is the central topic of a discussion at Digital Download Live in September. The world has changed radically and for good over the last two years, and left most brands desperately trying to work out their place in the new world. The social justice movement continues to impact all parts of society, the climate is now in crisis, diversity and inclusion are now major topics of concern, There's a cost of living crisis, COVID is still not over, there's a war in Europe, and the US Senate has opened the door for a ban on abortion. There is so much going on in the world that it's no wonder brands don't know where to turn. And yet the brands that are most loved the world over have found ways to generate affinity with large audiences, despite the world being in turmoil. And a new report from Talkwalker and Hootsuite looks at who those brands are and why they're succeeding when many others are struggling. Today's guest, Jack Richards, looks after marketing in Northern Europe for consumer intelligence company Talkwalker. He says that he originally became involved in the data side of marketing entirely by accident, but that to be a marketer in an organisation that helps marketing communications and PR professionals understand what makes people tick is a fantastic position to be in. Talkhawk has been around for over a decade, but it's really only in the last year that we've made a real focus in in the UK. We've gone from off the top of my head seven to seventy uh, headcount in the last in the last year. So for me, it's about pulling that together. Talkwalker and Hootsuite recently published their Brand Love Report, which investigates 1,500 global brands to find the 50 most loved brands in the world. And Jack is keen to point out that the methodology for the study is very rigorous compared to some other reports that are published on this topic. When we see these sort of benchmarking exercises, typically in the industry, they tend to look at one data point. Generally speaking, that's sentiment some of those that maybe aren't even quite there um, are volume-based, which anyone in PR comms marketing will run a mile from. So what we have done, our proprietary methodology, takes three data points, so it triangulates the data. Um, we look at customer satisfaction, we look at passion, and we look at trust. Um, and this is across a range of media types, it's across a range of online data points, bringing in anything from social media through to review site data to to better understand what makes uh, a brand loved and and where can they improve on a much more specific basis rather than just looking more broadly at at sentiment or volume or whatever else. And and when we talk about brand love, I mean, what's what's your sort of definition of of what that means at the end of the day? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I've been speaking to some talk walker clients and partners and particularly Hootsuite and brand love to me has to mean more than walking into the C-suite and you know hey guys we're a love brand yeah so 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 what It's, it's about moving the dial it's about more you know it's got to be objective based that's what we say to all of our clients whenever they're starting 
measuring a campaign or trying to derive consumer insights. So is it repeat custom? Is it better trust? Is it higher customer satisfaction? We know that from external reports like with KPMG and Forrester that people spend more with the brands they love. People come back to the brands they love. And and that's what it that's what it means. It's more than a vanity exercise. It's about achieving business outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was kind of one of the questions I had when when I first read the report. And I think this is answered in the report, actually, to be fair. But one of the first questions I had was, in the real world, does brand love actually mean anything? (laughs) You know? Yeah, I think it. I think it does. You know, marketers are recognizing the importance of brand love. Like I was saying, you know, love brands grow faster. They uh, retain revenue. They retain clients. But the way the way these brands are doing it is through getting closer to their consumers. We're we're sort of moving from a, a broadcast world of you know picking a message and and pushing it out. And the brands that are loved really get close to the data. They understand what matters to their audience, where they hang out, what are their media consumption habits, what are the issues that matter to them, and they're bridging bridging that gap. Uh, so I think brand love is, like I say, it, it goes beyond a vanity exercise. It's about addressing the issues that, that make campaigns more effective from a marketing or comms perspective and, and drive genuine value. And and the way that's measured through this, really, like you said, there's three elements to that. There's the passion, the trust, the customer satisfaction. But you you talked then about various data points. Can you explain a bit more about what those data points are? Sure. So if we break down that this idea of building out a brand love ranking, essentially through a, a customer centric approach, like I said, we've got a passion score, a trust score, and a CSAT or customer satisfaction score. That passion score measures extreme passion, either positive or negative, towards an organization. And, you know, we're not just looking at sentiment. We use keyword analysis. We use Talkwalker's talk image analysis to look not just at how often an, an image appears, be that a logo or whatever else, but the broader context of that image. Okay. Uh, emo, emoji ana, uh, analysis on Facebook to define and weight results based on the level of, of passion or emotion portrayed. So that gives you already a, a far fuller picture of passion than, than a sentiment score. Yeah. If you look at customer satisfaction, for instance, we use review databases and, uh, and keywords to identify brands' customers and then denote the results based on those individuals. So we, we're bypassing this sort of macro scale and going straight to the conversations and the data points that relate to the to the customer and that's the same with with trust again using keyword image emoji analysis to to define and and weight those results based on on the level of trust portrayed so it's going beyond just maybe say traditional media analysis or going beyond you know social volume and bringing in third party data you know, for, for some of our clients, they'll even bring in first party data to really get down to the conversations that, that people are having and understand what what brand love means to their consumers as well. Yeah. OK. Now, one of the, the well, I suppose the key takeaway that came out from this year's report was that the brands that are 
ranking highest in this are putting sustainability effectively sort of front and center of what they're doing and that kind of breaks down into three areas which is the environment social and economic can you talk through a bit of each of those in turn and what they mean yeah sure i'm glad that you pointed out it's more than you know being cleaner and and yeah yeah you you have got I always say, is it CSR or PR? Is it <laughs> yeah. corporate social responsibility or is, or is it public relations? Because I think so often organisations are maybe exploiting this idea of you know planting a tree or two to make it look like a, a good organisation. Yes, so absolutely. Something that's really interesting, probably pertinent today in particular with the, with the cost of living crisis and the conversation around supermarkets maybe not stocking particular retailers at the moment because their their prices are are going up is that economic sustainability which no doubt feeds into trust can i trust a brand take for instance a, a travel agent or an airline if we know that economically they're not particularly stable on the other hand take an organization that uses lots of plastics and lots of oil and although their, their consumers might be highly passionate about the brand. They might trust them from an environmental perspective. What are they doing to, to address those issues if they matter to their, to their consumers and breaking, yeah. breaking that down um, is, is really important. And it's very much about communicating efforts in these three areas, but not for the sake of communicating. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? There has to be some depth to it because I think people see through greenwashing around the environment especially but even around social stuff you know whether it's employee well-being or dni at the moment is is big on the agenda but i think consumers see through things that don't have any depth now and that probably feeds into that trust thing of, of, of destroying that well we hear a lot about authenticity now don't we you've got to yeah practice what you preach whether that's me at TalkWalker talking about doing meaningful, objective-based, data-driven measurement, or whether that's, you know, being seen to be ethical, sustainable. sustainable. You've got going on at the moment, the car manufacturers, the automotive brands in particular, if you look at their social media profiles, uh, they are changing for Pride Month uh, their logo, yeah. and, and, and rightly so. Um, until you look at some of the other regions where being LGBTQ plus isn't uh, accepted uh-huh. in, in the same way it is in the West. You know, if you look at the UK, you look at the US, you look at uh, the French, you look at the German accounts, all changed if you then move over to the Middle East, that they're not. So it's clearly not reflective of a broader brand value. Yeah. And you could, it could be said that it's jumping on, jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think with, with things like that as well, like I said, consumers see through this stuff very quickly now. Even right, so this is a, a very a tangential point, but we were talking about economic factors there. And I was thinking about it from a, a personal perspective when you were talking, okay? Now we have a, a Tasmo machine <laughs> yeah. and uh, I buy Costa things to go in it, right? Look at you. I know. <laughs> How well am I doing, right? <laughs> um, but Costa recently have reduced the pack size but kept it the same price. And that 
it feels really disingenuous to me because I don't want a smaller pack size, but it's almost a way of of getting around the fact that the price has gone up. Do you know what I mean? It just feels wrong. And I know this is a small and petty example, but when it comes to love for a brand, that sort of thing can impact my trust from probably from an economic standpoint, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I was speaking to uh, Talk TV this morning about beans, um, which, <laughs> right. is, which is ironic because I've, I actually hate beans, not that I would go for. But there was a, a conversation before we went on air about exactly this, uh, and the presenter suggested that if, if the price is too expensive for Tesco, why don't they just make make smaller, you know, smaller yeah. portions, whatever, like it's been happening for the last 20, 30 years. Look at the size of the chocolate bar now. Yeah. But I made the exact point you did. I completely agree that it, it's not authentic. It's disingenuous. Mm. It disenfranchises buyers and it makes them look elsewhere. But I guess it depends on on the product, right? That's a pretty, this is getting a bit economicy and boring, but if you look at price elasticity or income mm. elasticity of demand, beans it's a it's a basic good people are likely to maybe be open to looking at, at something else yeah if it is a a car which is more of a a luxury good my view is is that people are or that not that you can change cars in quite the same way but people are, are less likely to to shift they've got higher higher brand loyalty so i think it's also important to look in the context of of the vertical market the industry the brand whatever no, you're right. I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, coffee pods is not the same as a car, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and even, again, from a personal example, we're having to have the roof repaired on our house at the moment, right? And we had a quote done last year, and for various reasons it didn't get done, and it's come round again, and all the prices have gone up. And, and that's no one's fault because of the prices of materials have gone up. In that instance, which is tens of thousands of pounds, I'm not going, right, I need to shift to someone else because i trust Mm. the guy that's different and then there's me being picky over coffee pods so (laughs) yeah it's all it's all relative though it's all relative i had uh, a massage the other day uh not not something i get done (laughs) regularly but we were saying it before we before we started recording it's been a busy month everyone seems to be uh finding it difficult in june so i thought i'd treat myself uh and the the cost of fuel has gone up this lady come comes to your house and the, the price had gone up two pounds fine but in that in that scenario that's fine but it wasn't communicated up front yeah and i have to wonder whether that was a a different brand or or service particularly for the service industry how how important is communication around pricing and, and how much does that impact consumer behavior i don't know but i, I imagine it's much, it's far more about the way in which it's communicated than than the change itself yeah, but that that comes back to the, the the sort of brand you're talking about. Who am I right in thinking? Well, it, it seemed to make sense given the methodology. These brands are good at talking about the things either they are doing or have to do, whether it's you know putting up a price or whatever. But they are good at communicating those things because this this report measures, like you say, keywords and reviews and and sentiment analysis and all that stuff, which is either. Well, it's online data, which means someone must have talked about it. They must have talked about it. A lot of people are talking about it or it wouldn't register. But they they are good at communicating about 
the things that either are important to them or important to their customers, which is probably more to the point. This goes exactly back to the the point I always make about customer centricity and understanding your audience. What all of these brands are brilliant at is understanding who their audience is, getting close to the data and understanding what what the issues are that that matter to them. I think it's you know particularly post COVID, everything's changed. Everything you thought you knew about your consumers has changed. Who they are, where they hang out, media consumption habits, spending habits the issues that matter to them, the socio-political landscape, there's a, you know, there's a war in Europe, a whole lot has changed. So it's it's no longer good enough for brands, and, and big brands still do this, to conduct one-off pieces of research. You know, your February 2020 focus group, it's out of date. Your client survey isn't holistic enough. Your pulse survey isn't regular enough. So to truly understand your audience, to genuinely what we call close the consumer closeness gap. You've got to have your finger on the pulse with up to the minute data, actionable insights, and get close to the real conversations your consumers are having, not what the media is reporting, not just what reviews are saying, but what everything comes together to to provide a picture of. You've got to understand your audience and become customer centric. And looking at the the UK top ten in particular, I think I think they've all managed to to do that, you know, remarkably well. I just want to interject quickly because I have some very exciting news. After a three-year hiatus due to the pandemic, Digital Download Live is back, in person and in September. If you've been before, you'll know that it's a fantastic day packed full of audience-led Q&As, interviews, workshops and presentations, all focused on the very latest stuff that you need to know if you work in digital communications, PR or social media marketing. Now, so much has changed in marketing communications over the last couple of years. Technologies like NFTs and the metaverse have come to the fore. TikTok now gets more internet traffic than Google, while Facebook and Instagram are both on the slide. And iOS 14 and the deprecation of third-party cookies are killing digital advertising and analytics as we know them. It's a challenging time for marketers and staying on top of all of the changes is a bit of a minefield. But that's what Digital Download Live is for. For more information and booking details, head to ddl22.com. That's ddl22.com. I hope to see you there. Who are the the brands in the UK that are really standing out for this at the moment? I feel like I should do a, a drum roll. Um, <laughs> I can put that in. <laughs> well, I won't. I won't. You know, I won't list. You know, in number ten is in number nine is. But what I will, uh, I'll, I'll pick out a few. And if you want to go and download the report, you can find that on Talkwalkers website. There are a few interesting ones. I think Lego. Lego came out number one in the UK. That that's interesting. Something that seems to be driving the conversation for them are the partners they work with. Okay. When I think of Lego, I think of Harry Potter, I think of uh, Star Wars, I think of Assassin's Creed, those, those sorts of things. And they're really understanding their audience, broadening their audience and, and delivering campaigns based on the things that that matter to them through through those partnership activities. Mm. Uh, I mean, another another example is is L'Oreal, for instance, they have uh, a big influencer strategy, which which is an interesting one. During the 
pandemic, the government were using influencers to try and get people to conform, get their vaccine, stay inside, whatever. So, of course, what they decided to do, and this is no criticism of, of UK GovComs in any way, what they decided to do was go and get some Love Island influencers. <laughs> yeah. And this goes back to your point on authenticity and, you know, being genuine and, and validity of, of message. <laughs> they hired these Love Island influencers to tell you to stay at home, wear your mask, whatever, which they post on their Instagram account at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. And by two o'clock, they're uploading pictures of them in, you know, in Dubai, yeah. drink, drinking it up in April 2020. And and L'Oreal have done really well at making sure that that their, their influencers genuinely resonate with the broadest spectrum of society possible. Although there there is a blunder, the drum covered a piece where Helen Mirren, who's one of their brand ambassador, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to swear on this podcast. But yeah, go ahead. They say, uh, <laughs> you know, they said it. <laughs> their moisturizer probably does fuck all, which you know that's an example of it gone wrong. But yeah. that's the only that's the only example I could find. Everything else they're doing around influencer strategy is great. They understand their audience. They find people who reflect them, and they deliver a genuine, authentic, resonating messaging. Yeah. One of the others that you picked out when we were talking before was Nando's as, as kind of an interesting example. Why, why are Nando's on, on the list? Nando's are, are great because they jump on board the sort of popular culture, the, the sort of TikTok culture, and not everything's polished and it doesn't have to be. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the most memorable things um, for Nando's for me wasn't actually done by Nando's. It was example and Ed Sheeran uh, singing by some bins at a concert about Nando's make, making up making up a song. But they exploit that. They understand. They they jump on the trend. They see that emerging. Lo and behold, example and Ed Sheeran then have a Nando's black card, which you know if we think about the marketing funnel, then builds this this desire. So they're really good at understanding where their audience hangs out first and foremost but also who they want to be like you know who influences them what are the conversations that that are happening and i think that's something we'll start to see more from from consumer brands yeah yeah i, I totally agree with that from a a consumer perspective the report outlines on on a couple of pages what the the challenges for brands are now in terms of how the new consumer is what do you think that consumers really want to see from brands now? Given all this stuff we've talked about around the environment and, and social stuff and economic stuff, there's a whole load going on, obviously, at the moment around uh, cost of living. The social injustice movement is not going away. There's climate. you know. I mean, there's so much in the world going on what do you think that consumers want to see from brands at the moment? I'm, I'm not necessarily sure it's what it's about what they want to see. I think it's about what they want to feel. I think they want to feel that they can trust that brand. I think they want to feel satisfied as customers that that, that brand is going to deliver for them. And I think that they want to be enthused. They want to be able to feel passionate and stand up and say, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of Lego. Well, you know, tweet and say, oh, I'm, at, I'm, I'm at Nando's, I like it here. Mm. You know, to, to have an affiliation 
particularly with the growth of that sort of community focus. And that's something I spend a lot of time speaking to Michelle Goodall at, at Guild about. That community yeah. focus is, is growing as well. But I definitely think it's about creating memorable experiences that, that drive a feeling, not just something that, that you think. Okay, here's a big question. How, how do you do that? I mean, what, you know, you cite an example of, of Lego or Nando's. I mean, they're big brands, right? How, as a smaller brand who doesn't have the, the volume of, of talk across social media or the exposure that those brands do, how do you go about generating that feeling? How do you cut through all the, all the other stuff that's out there? I think it just comes back to how to create love for your brand. And I get asked a lot, like, well, is my brand big enough? And my answer to that is, well, if you've got customers and you want more customers, then yes, you should be focusing on on how to become a love brand. So there's a there's a, a few nuggets of advice that, that I would provide. Tug at the right heartstrings in the right places. Yep. particularly when we're talking about social, choose the best social channel for your objectives and, and start with objectives and, and work out from there. That love is built on trust. Let go of your brand a bit and mm-hmm. em- embrace what's going on around you and adapt to your consumers. And by consumers, I mean customers, I mean you know potential customers, I mean other stakeholders. Share the love, I guess I would say. So start thinking about social, particularly as more than a marketing tool. Again, coming back to the idea of community building and engaging with your consumers more broadly and focus on customer centricity. Find ways to get closer to your customers, to understand the issues that matter to them, where they're hanging out, the things that they want from you as a brand. And I think that... that that will surely send you on the right track. To hear more from Jack, look him up on Twitter. You can subscribe to Digital Download on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave a review as this helps others discover the podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.